Morning, everyone. Okay, we're going to continue, like Will said, in Genesis 9 this morning. We're uh, bringing to a close the story of Noah, uh, which will have and has had huge repercussions for the history, the history that we find ourselves in today. I remember as a young student of the Bible, or when I was a new Christian, reading these stories and um, trying to see the relevance of the, or the relevance of them in today's world, or I couldn't really see them. And with good teaching, I was I was shown realities in these verses that are, um, you know, give the meaning that they're just more than stories. But before we begin, let's pray. Father God, we just thank you that we're able to meet you this morning in Nakara, that we have the school, and that we have each other, and most importantly, that we have you. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes to uh, the truths that are found in your scripture, that you've opened your eyes to us, um, that as Paul said in Ephesians, that you've chosen us before the foundations of the world, and you've blessed us with forgiveness and reconciliation, and you've promised us a great promise of joining you one day in heaven as all things will be united under Christ. And these truths and this reality we'll Commit this time to you, Lord, as we look at your word. Amen. Well, we're into another year, 2023, and I suppose um, it's another year, it's another beginning. Some of us might try and make resolutions, which we know probably will be broken by next week. (laughs) Maybe not. Um, You know, I think every year we all try and look at our lives in the past year and see, is there any rights that we could keep doing in the new year, anything that was good and positive? Any wrongs that we can fix, maybe. Maybe broken relationships. Um, Maybe time to say to that person that we've been putting it on the long finger, I'm sorry. Maybe something to do with our personal health, ways to improve it, etc., etc. But whatever happens at this time of the year, I always feel, anyways, that it's a new beginning. And this particular passage that we're looking at today is kind of a bit about new beginnings. We find that Noah comes, this particular passage takes place just shortly after they come from the ark, Noah and his clan, about 20 years. And we find that um, Noah has returned to his former occupation of being a planter, of being a husbandman, of being a farmer. After, of course, being distracted for about 100 years by a kind of important carpentry job. And we find that he plants a vineyard Amongst other crops, I'm sure, it wasn't the only thing he cropped or planted. And in this particular passage, we see that the fruits of his labor, the fruits of his bounty, he relishes and he enjoys, and he has a drink of wine. The problem is he enjoyed the fruit of the vine a little bit too much in this particular instance. And as is the way of people who drink too much, he ended up in a bit of trouble. We find out that... People who drink too much in the Bible and in our own lives usually bring misfortune on themselves. So what we'll do this morning is we'll look at Proverbs 20. So get get to Proverbs 20 and to Proverbs 23. And we'll have a look at a few things which concerns drink in in those Proverbs. Now, the Bible does not criticize the drinking of wine. Let me just say that straight away here in case people are thinking, oh, I know where this is going. In fact... The partaking of wine is encouraged. 
Like everything in life, it's a good fruit of God and it's encouraged as long as it's done moderately. It's the over-excessiveness of wine drinking and drunkenness in particular that's criticized vehemently in the Bible. But anyways, the Bible gives us some tip-offs about how to cope with wine and wine drinking and drinking in general. If we look at chapter, or Proverbs 20, verse 1, it says that wine is a mocker, a strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And Proverbs 23 says, who has woe? In other words, who has sorrow? Who has sorrows? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of, light, of eyes? We can all appreciate that one. Those who tarry long over wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. I suppose some of us who've had too much drink in the past will attest to the truthfulness of these verses. Wine goes down smoothly, but in the end, it bites like a serpent. So most in this room have been delivered from addictions to alcohol, and perhaps read those verses with heightened sensitivity to others who might have no problem with controlling drink in their lives and partake just with occasional drinks. So we must appreciate that many people will look at this particular text or these particular proverbs in different ways. We see here that Noah, all through the Bible, it said he was exemplary. It says that he was a preacher of righteousness. Genesis 6, 9 says that Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. And it even says that Noah walked with God. So you might say, well, hang on now. If he was blameless in his generation, what's going on here with Genesis 9 where we find Noah drinking too much wine and getting drunk? Well, I think the Bible, what the Bible means there is that he was blameless in his sincerity, not in his sinless perfection. And we can identify with that, can't we? You know, we, we should perhaps cut Noah some slack, but not in the area of sin, but we can see perhaps there was a festival on that time, maybe giving thanks to the harvest. He'd been through a lot during the previous hundred years, I'm sure, severe trauma. He's now in a new world, completely different to the old world. He was extremely stressed out, I suppose, and some people might think, well, what harm was there if he had a little bit of a, a tiffle? Matthew Henry gives us a word of warning. He says that sometimes those who, with watchfulness and resolution, have, by the grace of God, they've kept their integrity in the midst of temptation, but have, through security and carelessness and neglect of the grace of God, been surprised into sin when the hour of temptation has been over. Noah, who had kept sober in drunken company, is now drunk in sober company. And Henry finishes and gives us an admonition and says, let him who thinks that he stands take heed. So Noah's lack of self-control certainly showed a lack of wisdom. There's no doubt about that. And also about, like the, the uh, proverb, uh, like Solomon said, in, it also about sorrow and about him strife. And we see in verse 21 of the text today that in his drunkenness, he lay uncovered in his tent, and his son 
Ham saw him. And this wasn't good. Now, some perhaps who are not as sensitive to the Word of God, who, uh, who, who wants us to be uh, image bearers to him, might not see much wrong in this scenario. They might say, well, what wrong? what's wrong with a good dose of wine now and again? I mean, he deserved it after all. He was true, didn't he? And so what if he was over uncovered? He was uncovered in his own tent, what a man does in the privacy of his own home, his own business, isn't it? Well, the consequence of Noah's sin was shame. The shame that was brought about by lying uncovered in his tent. Does this scenario remind you of any other man in the Bible? Another man who was found naked to his shame? Well, it probably should remind us of Adam in the garden. In fact, the whole passage here, chapter 9, reminds us of Genesis 1 to 3. We have both of them are about new beginnings. Both of them see planting going on. Both of them see a man become naked. And both of them see a man who sins. At least Adam tried to cover his nakedness, but Noah here is too drunk even to do that. The phrase lay uncovered has an important meaning. It means that Noah himself uncovered himself. Now, there's all sorts of conjecture among the commentators on how, on how Noah actually got uncovered, but the text indicates that he uncovered himself. Who should see Noah but his youngest son, Ham? And Ham, verse 22 says, or we see in verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, there was nothing innocent about Ham discovering his father in this state. Now, to discover his, his father by accident would not have been a crime. But the word saw in this particular text has a meaning of he saw and he lingered in his look. It has the meaning of he was pleased to see his dad in this state. And then the Hebrew suggests that when he told his brothers, he didn't just tell them as a matter of course, he told them, it says, with delight, what he had seen. Now, why Ham would delight in his father's misfortune, we're not sure. Maybe he himself was a man who was overfond of the drink, and his dad had admonished him many times before. Noah had been a preacher of righteousness, perhaps. Some commentators have said that perhaps some other sexual sin was committed in the tent. And that explains the severity of Noah's curse on Canaan later on. There's no uncertainty to any of these conjectures. But what is certain, as commentator Don Stewart says, is that in the ancient world, merely seeing one's father naked was a highly offensive act, or seeing one, one's mother naked. The father's position, Stewart says, as moral and spiritual head would be brought into disrepute, and the family unit would suffer as a result of this. The culture, and we, we read this in our Bible, the culture in which this event occurred considered it a capital crime for a child even to strike his father. Well, we can see that Ham sinned in a number of ways. At the very least, he showed indiscretion. Instead of trying to conceal his dad's sin, he revealed it and revealed it with relish. And secondly, he blatantly dishonored his dad. A father, we can be sure, who was loving and who took care of him and who minded him right through the most tumultuous event that anyone had ever seen, the flood. 
and Ham as a dad himself. I mean, you'd think he'd understand that, wouldn't you? Any father here today would, would understand that, I think. But no, Ham took advantage of his dad's misfortune to ridicule him and to heap more shame on him. So here we have a situation where, where sin is crouching at Ham's door, and he has a choice now. He can resist it, or he can give in to it. And he gave in to it. And we can see now that one sin flows into another, and it snowballs. It was bad enough to see the nakedness of his father, but to tell others what he had seen, especially his brothers, to bring disrepute and shame on the family was an altogether different level of a sin. The ESV in verse 23 in my Bible begins with the word then. Now, the NIV might begin with the word but, and I think but is more fitting, fitting because it shows the contrast between Shem and Japheth and their, and their brother Ham. It says, then, or but, Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So their brother's response was totally at odds with Ham. Their response was one of righteousness. They decided to cover their father's nakedness, to cover his shame with a robe instead of revealing it. Unlike Ham, they were different men altogether. They were honorable and they were charitable. And there's an important point to be noted here in the contrast between the two brothers and Ham. Adam and Eve hid the shame of their nakedness. Unlike Ham, who actually relished in, relished in it, and the Canaanites, of course, who came after Ham, they had no sense of their shame before God at all. We read this in the Bible. Their religion was one of sensuality, and they performed despicable acts, offering even their children in sacrifice. They seemed to have no boundaries to their shame. And the important point is that in this particular verse here, verse 23, two groups of people are shown, two groups of mankind. The sons of Noah, Shem and Japheth, and Adam, men who were honorable and charitable and who tried to cover the shamefulness of others, and men like Ham and the Canaanites afterwards who relished in it and made a business of exposing it. And I think from this we can maybe make an application point. There are many application points we could, we could make from this passage, and, and Will teased out one earlier when he read Psalm 32 about being covered, our, our sin is covered by Christ. But in today's world, there's so much ham-like behavior to be found. I thought it might be prudent maybe to speak briefly on this. All we do is it, it comes in on our phones, our social media platforms, and our so-called entertainment. It's so full of people who have the spirit of ham, who make a business of exposing other people's misfortunes and even delighting in them like ham himself. It's often done, as we can see, under the guise of humor or jesting or slagging or just having a bit of crack. But it is harmful and shameful to others. In fact, some photographers, they go to extraordinary lengths to try and get revealing pictures of people in their birthday suits, and then they'll sell them on to the highest bidder, be it social media platforms or be it some, some magazine. And the appetite, the appetite with, with the public or which the public shows for this type of behavior is just insatiable. On the darker side, many take 
advantage of this insatiable appetite of people uh, to look at shameful things and they take videos and images of themselves and their own tents, so to speak, for all to see. Many of these sites have ties in indirectly or directly to pornographic sites, which continues to be a strong multi-billion dollar industry. We know all these things. These people know no shame. I have a question. I wonder what a typical savvy social media poster would make today of Genesis 9. What would they make of Ham's behavior? Well, they probably wouldn't see anything wrong with it at all. They might even say, fair play to Ham, he was just putting his brand out there, promoting himself. It's getting, even for us as Christians, increasingly difficult to protect ourselves from this culture of shaming and ridiculing. We as Christians, we have to show self-control. We have to show wisdom in dealing with these problems. You know, we mustn't get caught up too much in the, in the web of the internet because what do webs do best? They trap. We mustn't allow, and this is important, we mustn't allow the culture of shaming and ridiculing to engulf us. And what does it do to us? It hardens our heart and it hardens our mind. And it makes us so hard and so used to these things that we wake up one day and we're, we're just not shocked and horrified by it anymore. Paul says we should seek the things that are above. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things, have fervent charity. This is what Ham didn't have. Have fervent charity, Peter says, amongst yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. We're called to be like Shem. We're called to be like Japheth, who graciously covered their father's sin, who didn't reveal it, who protected their father from mocking and gossip. We are called to be a people who throw robes over other people's sins. People in this church who've hurt us perhaps in the past or who've done things that were sinful, <clears throat> instead of relishing in their sin, instead of revealing the sin, we should protect them build them up and encourage them. This is our duty as Christians. This is what makes us different from the world. This is what makes us different from the people of the spirit of Ham. Let's remember where we came from ourselves. Romans 5, 6 says that for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We were just like Ham. And Romans 5, 10 says that while we were still enemies, we ourselves were reconciled to God. So we're called to be people of reconciliation, who build up, who don't tear down, who forgive when we're wronged, who don't reveal the faults in others, perhaps who we might have a grudge against, or perhaps who've done something hurtful, and we like to perpetuate this hurt or perpetuate this grudge by perhaps gossiping about them. You know, some way, some twisted way of getting back on them. Turn to Psalm 1. I think Psalm 1 has much to tell us. <clears throat> it's not a very long Psalm. We won't be looking at all of it, but we'll just briefly look at verses 1, 2, and 3. I think they're really, really, really relevant here. Psalm 1 starts off, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Ham was a scoffer. There's no doubt about it. And he wanted his brothers to join in with him. You see, when it comes to scoffers, there's always safety in numbers. 
When it comes to bullies, there's always safety in numbers. Wicked men encourage one another, and so should righteous men. We are called to be men and women of verse 2. Verse 2 says, But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he or she meditates day and night. If we are blessed by delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on it day and night, then that means we should have less time for getting caught up in the things of this world. Our adversary, Peter says in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, is strong and he's busy. He's not idle. Peter warns us similarly, he says, be sober-minded. And listen, Peter says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then Peter goes on in verse 9 saying, resist him, firm in your faith. How are we to resist such a firm, such a strong adversary? Well, the psalmist says, by delighting and meditating in the word and the law of the Lord. You see, the law of the Lord doesn't just mean the Ten Commandments. It means the whole revelation of truth in the word of God. It means to delight in this gracious, and as Will said earlier, this, this blessed, or this um, beautiful God of ours, this merciful, this forgiving, this tender, loving, and compassionate God, as revealed in his, world, in his word. It's to let the word of God to be a lamp to our feet so that we won't stumble, spend more time in it, ponder on it, try and apply it to your life, try and get a quiet period of the day to to read and to pray to God. And surely this will benefit us. And it will. Look at verse 3 of this psalm, how it will benefit us. The person who does this, the psalmist says, will be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he prospers. If you find the technology is winning your affections. What can you do? Well, I know it's obvious, and you've probably been told this before, you can spend less time on it. You can limit your time. Perhaps check into your social media posts or, or messages at a particular time of the day and limit yourself. If this doesn't work, consider taking a break from your phone or maybe even go back and buy a phone that's not a smartphone, if that's possible. I remember a couple of years ago, I lost my phone, and it took me about a week to get a new one. And in that week, the first day, I was all over the place. Every time I'd go in the car somewhere, I'd, oh, I don't have the phone. I wonder, will someone be trying to contact me? I hope not. What if the car breaks down? What if I need to call the guards? All these silly thoughts that would never have entered my head when I didn't have a phone years, years prior when I was a young man entered my head. But after a couple of days, the stress of all this began to go. And after a week, I was actually a bit reluctant to go into the phone shop to buy a new phone. It might be something worth trying. And whatever you do, if you do find yourself on social media posts, be charitable. Be a man and a woman of the light. Use your time to build others up and to encourage. Don't tear down. It's so easy to get sucked up, isn't it? Into nasty, negative comments. Don't get caught up in the way of the wicked. Because verse 4 says, the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff. In other words, the worthless, useless bit of the seed 
that the wind drives away. Ham has shown wickedness by dishonoring his father. And as we pick up the story in verses 24, 25, we find that Noah is not pleased when he learns what's happened. Verse 24 reads, when Noah awoke from his wine, wine there means wine stupor, and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now, the question that you might have sitting there today is, why was Canaan cursed? I mean, he had nothing to do with it, sure he didn't. It was Ham who sinned against his father. Well, the last two verses, the last couple of verses here, three, four verses of this particular passage, there are so many different opinions amongst the commentators, it's, it's kind of hard to sift through it all. But most commentators claim that because Ham was blessed already by God, the three sons of Ham were already blessed by God previously, that Ham now couldn't be unblessed somehow. And so Noah decided to curse the offspring of Ham, who was Canaan. Just as Ham was the youngest of Noah's sons, supposedly, the youngest of Ham's son, Canaan, would be cursed. Now, this is one theory. Other people posit that, really, if we read the text, and this is obvious to us, that it wasn't Ham himself. It was Canaan who was cursed. And the reason why Canaan was cursed is Canaan was the father of the Canaanites who went on to, as we mentioned earlier and as we'll see later on, um, this particular culture and this particular uh, religion of the Canaanites was hideous. It involved child worship. It involved much sexual um, aberrance. And God had instructed Moses and Joshua and David and all the great heroes of the Bible afterwards to rid the land of this sinful wicked people. In fact, he'd sent, he'd sent the kin of Abraham down to Egypt while the sin of the Canaanites was building up to a time when it would be judged. Either way, Ham has wronged his father and will have to be judged and was judged through Canaan, his son. Noah woke up and he prophesied. He wasn't under the spirit of stupor anymore. He was under the spirit of prophecy. And he said, Ham, you're going to be a servant of servant. In other words, the lowest of all the servants. A bit like when we read in our Bibles that the Lord is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Ham, or Canaan, would be a servant of servants. The lowest, most destitute, most dastardly servant. Someone to be walked upon and trod on and misused. And unfortunately, we find that this was the case with the Canaanite cultures for many, many years afterwards. We'll come back to this at the end again. On the other hand, verse 26, notice God doesn't seem to bless Shem directly. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Poor Canaan is getting his name honorably mentioned again, associated with the curse the second time, and even his, the third time in the next verse. When it comes to Japheth, we find that Ham or Canaan will also be the servant of Japheth. Blessing has this meaning of filled with strength to accomplish a purpose. This idea of multiplying, this idea of being fruitful. And we'll see this in verse 27 when Japheth is encouraged or told by Noah, may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Another tricky verse, another verse where the commentators fight over. Some kind of say, well, um, 
Shem and Japheth would have fellowship. And this is what it means that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. And this fellowship was brought about because through Shem, through the Semites, through the Jews, Jesus, the Messiah, was brought about, and therefore the gospel. And Japheth would benefit and would be blessed by the gospel and would live in the tents of Shem, be in fellowship with them, be blessed by Shem through the gospel that came through, through Shem. Others think, no, that, for that when Shem is encouraged here are blessed to enlarge, that it means that the sheer number of Japetites, and most of the Western world, most of us in this room are probably Japetites, certainly in Ireland, most of the Japetites, most of the world is Japetites from Japheth, and that they overpowered the Shemites, and that they would have dominion in some way, live in their tents sort of under um, the spirit of dominion. Whichever is true, and there are a couple of other theories as well, Canaan would be a servant to both of them. For those of you who are interested in history, I, I remember when I was a young Christian, I'd sometimes be reading these things and wonder, I wonder has any of this stuff come through? I mean, Ham, all the people came descended from, it said there in the beginning, from Ham, from Japheth, and from Canaan. I mean, who are these people? Who am I? And when, I was first, when it was first pointed out to me that I came from the tribe of Japheth, I was intrigued and I said, if, if this Bible is true, well, well, some of these prophecies that Noah prophesied uh, on his three sons, we should be able to see some sort of way that they've come through. Have they come through? And I think they have. We don't find an identifiable people like the Canaanites today. It looks like that they've been annihilated. They, they're not no more. Certainly their culture and their religion, thankfully, has gone by the wayside. We, we, we mentioned earlier they, lived in a, they had a really highly sexualized religious system with, with temple prostitutes, both male and female. They adored this god called Baal who demanded child sacrifice and they would offer up their children in this big kind of the arms of this burning statue of Molech, and they would delight in this. And the connection between this highly sexualized religion that they had of the Canaanites and Ham's delight in seeing his dad lying in naked shame is telling, I think. We have a saying in Ireland like father, like son. There seems to be a family resemblance here between Ham and the Canaanites. Now, Israel and her kings, of course, were, they, were, they, were, they were Semites. They were from the tribe of Shem. And they were routed from their lands under Moses. Sorry, uh, Israel and, and her kings, of course, were Semites. And they routed the, um, the Canaanites from their land, but didn't do a very good job of it. There were still little remnants. And this caused all kinds of problems, as we read right through the Old Testament, to Israel. Because some of the Israelites followed the, 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 the vile habits of the, um, of the Canaanites had gotten severe trouble for it. But it's very interesting to know that the, uh, the tribes of Jabeth, we're talking about the Greeks and the Romans, they took the Canaanites much more seriously. The last great Canaanite empire were uh, the uh, Carthaginians. I'm, I'm going to say the Kardashians, but they weren't the Kardashians. They were the, 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 the I'm going to say it at some stage because I get mixed up between these two words. They were the people who lived around Carthage in modern-day Tunisia. And they were the ancient Phoenicians. And they had a very, very strong little settlement down there that, that vied for supremacy in that area. 
And who was trying to keep them suppressed? It was the Japetites, it was the Greeks and the Romans. The Shemites had kind of a, quite a blasé look on the, on the Canaanites. They had done a, a sloppy job of following God's commandments of ridding them, of ridding the lands and ridding that part of the world from them. But the Greeks and the Romans took a much more serious approach to the Canaanites and particularly the religion. Um, their greatest leader at that time was a guy called Hannibal. And we might read about him in our history books. And he was a brilliant general, and he fought gallantly against the Romans. And he was only finally de defeated by a guy called Scipio Africanus at the Battle of Zama, about 200 years before Jesus Christ was born. So they were still strong as a nation, even up to them. And it's interesting to note that in the writings of that time, the Greeks and the Romans were appalled by the child-sacrificing tendencies of the Canaanites. And they've recorded this. They recognized this as a real danger to their own culture. And there was one guy called Cato the Elder, and he would stand up in the Senate, and he would passionately and powerfully deliver these speeches against the Canaanites. And he would end every one of them with, Carthage must be destroyed. A few years after his death, the last vestige of the Canaanites were destroyed. Carthage was destroyed forever. Well, after the flood, Noah lived for another 350 years, and he lived to be a right old age. He was a great blessing, no doubt, to his family and to all the people that he bumped into along his long life. He was a preacher of righteousness, and he lived to see two worlds. And so do we. We live in this world where we live as sinners. We live in a world of suffering, a broken world. But God through Eve, through the promise he made to Eve, and through the Semites, the tribe of Shem, has blessed all nations. The people of Japheth, the people of Ham, and the people of Shem. There is no one left out. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that all should have believed should have everlasting life, and not perish. The Messiah, Jesus, unlike Ham, he's been an obedient son. He's honored his father. He's died an honorable death on the cross in order that reconciliation between us, sinful people, and a holy God would take place. We need not try like Adam to cover our own sin. Let Jesus do it for us. And one day, those of us who placed our hope in Jesus Christ, who've repented of our sin and believed on him, shall be with them in a new heavens and a new earth. Let's be encouraged before we sing our last hymn, giving glory and honor to our Father, of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, where we have this lovely picture of Jesus in heaven, singing with the congregation, with the brothers and sisters, with us, as we sing today, Jesus is singing with us. Hebrews 2 says, saying, I will tell of your name, this is the Father, to my brothers, this is Jesus speaking, in the midst of the congregation, that's you and I, I will sing your praise. So before we sing praise to the Father, let's pray to him. Father God, we just thank you that, um, we thank you that your word is alive. Um, it's not to be relegated to a dusty shelf somewhere in the house. What's happened here in chapter 9 of Genesis is real history. 
It's borne out by history, and it's borne out by our own lives and our own hearts when we look around and we see what a broken world we live in and what hope is offered through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to get to know you better. Help us to get to know you deeper. Help us to read your word. Help us to pray. Help us to take it seriously, Lord. Help us to set our things on, set our eyes on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. And let us remember that we have died, and the life we live no longer, we live to Christ, for we have died and we are hidden in, with Christ, it says in Colossians. We're hidden with Christ in God. What a great promise, Lord. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.